those ages three to four to seven. Four to seven dismissed to junior church, and those eight and nine have uh, clipboards there to do. Sure. Good morning. We will continue on in Jonah this week. Um, I have three more weeks to go, and there are two more chapters in Jonah, so either I'm going to have to slow down or I'm going to have to find another passage to preach on. So we'll see how that works out. So I'd like to open us with a word of prayer before we get into the word here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that are revealed in it about you, about Christ our Savior. Help us to make sense of it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help it to change us, to become more like Christ, Lord. Um, Help me as I preach to be clear and concise. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with a a brief review of chapter 1 that we went through last week. Um, For those who weren't here, for those of you whose memories aren't the best. So we start out, and so in the beginning of Jonah, you know, the Lord comes to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of Babylon, which would be the enemy of Israel. And so this is, go to your enemy and arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me, right? And so instead of obeying the word of the Lord, Jonah chooses to flee. And he chooses, it says he he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we, we have that same map up there last week. And Tarshish was like as far as you could get away in the known world at that time, right? It's a Current day, it would be a port in Spain. So all the way across the Mediterranean is where, where he's headed. He doesn't make it there, right? A great storm comes, and, that, and it says in verse 4, chapter 1, the Lord hurled the great wind upon the sea. So the Lord causes a storm to come upon Jonah in the ship that he's in. And he's in a ship that is the sailors do not know the Lord. They all worship false gods, and they're praying to their false gods, and nothing is happening. It is ineffective. Right? And Jonah is sleeping in the bottom of this ship in the middle of a great storm. And it continues to say how the storm keeps getting worse and worse. And finally they come to him and they're like, what are you doing sleeping? How are you sleeping? Right? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. And the God there is a little G God. 
right? So they're like, let's get out another God. We've prayed all ours, nothing happened. Maybe yours will do something, right? Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That's what it says in verse 6. And so they come to verse 7, they cast lots. Like, who, why, why is this happening, right? Somebody here did something. What's going on? And it falls to Jonah. And then Jonah comes clean, right? He had already told them, we find out later on, he had already told them he was fleeing from the presence of God. But he hadn't apparently told them what God it was he was fleeing from. Because when they ask him, you know, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? He replies, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And it says their response is the men were exceedingly afraid of this, right? So like, wait a second. You're fleeing from the God who's in control of everything? Like our gods that we worship, you know, this one's the sky God, this is the sea God, this is the land God. They're really not that powerful. They can only handle one thing, and they're even really not that good at that. As you can tell, we've been praying to them and nothing's happening. But your God does all these things? That's a problem for them. And you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Um, So then say, what do we do to you? How How do we... How do we appease your God, right? And Jonah's answer is, is not like, well, make a sacrifice to him, or maybe if you cut me some and bleed me out a little bit, then you can appease my God with some punishment. So throw me over. Cast me into the sea. That is what will solve this. I have sinned greatly, and my punishment would be death, right? That is where Jonah's at. He's like, well, the only way of you getting out of this is by me dying. Right? He has come to that point now where so some of the Jonah is fleeing from the Lord's presence because he is selfish and doesn't want to see his enemies saved. But he's come to this point now where he is willing to die for these sailors. And meanwhile, while they're discussing this, the sea's growing worse and worse. The sailors try to row back to shore, right? So they must have not been super far out in the Mediterranean because Apparently, they had some hope that if they really worked at it, they could make sure. But it's, it's ineffective. It's not happening. And ultimately, Jonah gets cast into the sea, right? And you see at the very end, you know, these men who are worshiping false gods are now praying to Jonah's God. It's, if you're looking in your scriptures, it says, O Lord, and it's that capital L-O-R-D, which would be Jehovah or Yahweh. This is Jonah's God. This is the God of heaven. They are now praying to him. And it says at the end there in verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And we'll see in this next chapter where vows comes up again. And so I was trying to, looking through the scriptures, trying to understand, okay, well, how do vows play in? And so as you go through the Old Testament, you see vows used in many different ways, Um, I believe it's Hannah, who vows to the Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you, right? This is a, if you do this, Lord, I will do this. I will follow through. So there would be people committing themselves or a potential, potential future child to the Lord. And there's scripture that talks about, so if you've made a vow to serve in the temple and you have now reached a point where you no longer to desire to serve out that vow, you can pay off the vow, essentially. The priest will give you a price, 
and you can pay that vow. And there are prices set for based on age, or if you are not wealthy enough to pay that amount, it will be based on how poor you are, basically. It was sort of a graduated system. But the vow system was a, if you know, you would make a commitment to the Lord, if you do this, I'll do this, right? Um, and we, we can be like, God, if you, just, if you just get me out of this, I will, I'll never sin again. <laughs> and that's not what these kind of vows were. This was, I will commit to serve you in this way. It wasn't a some pie-in-the-sky kind of thing that we are so used to coming across. But that is the vows that are spoken of. So then we get into, I wanted to go over that last verse of chapter 1, where Jonah is swallowed by the fish there, in verse 17, where it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see throughout Jonah the sovereignty of God at work. He controls the seas in chapter 1. Um, and here he is appointed a great fish. I think some of the other scripture translations might say he prepared a great fish. But this points to the word appointed means to assign a role or a job, right? So this is showing us that God is in control over this fish. And it's to think about it. So this fish was just the right size. As I'm reading and studying, I'm finding there are naysayers. You're like, well, this is a false story because there is no fish that is capable of swallowing a manhole, right? Well, if I believe that a fish swallowed a man and he stayed alive in him three days and then was spit up on the shore, am I necessarily constrained by whether or not you think it's possible. Like, it's a miraculous event. The fact that there is a fish prepared to do it in itself is a miracle. So you wouldn't expect to find that fish in nature because this is a miraculous event. And I'm not saying it was a bass that swallowed Jonah and God made a bass capable of swallowing him. It would still most likely be a large fish. It is not within the realm of impossibility, but he's preparing this fish. Um, there are thoughts, well, maybe it was a whale, right? There's some really large whales. Or maybe it's a shark. <laughs> Imagine being swallowed whole by a shark, right? And we always have these pictures of Jonah like, oh, yeah, he gets spit up by a fish, and he gets up, and he walks away, and he's like, man, that was no fun. But I, I envision Jonah gets spit up by this fish, and he is a wreck. He, like, barely made it out of there. He's going to need a little bit of time to heal up in order to be able to go to Nineveh. Because this was an experience. He was near death the whole time. So in which case, being swallowed by a shark is not out of the picture in my mind because, well, he might have gotten bit up a little bit in the process. As If you look into, it's Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where Christ talks about the only sign that you will receive is the sign of Jonah. And you'll see... Some of you have King James. You, if you look at that scripture, you'll see it says whale there, you know, as Jonah was swallowed by a whale. If you look in New American Standard, it says sea monster. And if you look in the ESV, it says, I believe it's great fish. So the conclusion that I come to there is 
differences in translations. Um, just because it says whale in King James doesn't mean that that's the exact perfect translation. The same thing with sea monster. Everywhere you see throughout Scripture, it, it's always pointing to this being a great fish. It, it's not specific enough for us to say, yes, this is exactly what it was. <clears throat> but you see the miraculousness of this, that the Lord appointed this great fish to swallow up Jonah. This fish is in the right place at the right time. It is the right size. God is involved in this. He is sovereign over his creation. And I started thinking about, so what would it be like to be swallowed by a fish and to be in there for three days? He started thinking like, so if it's a, just a, a fish as we know it, most fish are cold-blooded. And so it's like, well, what's the temperature of the Mediterranean Sea? We don't know what time of year this was, but it, I was finding it can range from 65 degrees to 81 degrees. Right? So there's a chance he's in a 65-degree fish for three days. 65 doesn't sound that bad until you are being soaked in it for three days straight. That's like a lukewarm bath for three days. Not even lukewarm. We would probably consider it cold. 80 degrees, 70-some degrees, that'd probably not be... You wouldn't notice the temperature swing, I think. But then there's like, well, so what if it's a whale? Well, whales are mammals, So their temperature runs between 97 and 100 degrees, very similar to ours. So then consider being inside of this whale that's almost 100 degrees for three days straight. That's hot. (laughs) That is, it would get to you. Hence my thoughts of like Jonah B. And when he gets done, like he is not in good shape. So that's one aspect is the temperature And then I'm thinking, like, so this fish is swimming through the sea, right? We know from high school physics class, based on the depth of the water, the pressure changes, right? So as he's in this fish and it's going up and down, the pressure in there is changing. It's doing all kinds of weird things to him, right? You've been in a plane where the cabin is pressurized, and still your ears pop. Well, he's in a fish that is not pressurized. It is balanced to the water around him. So he's experiencing all these pressure variations. And then he just came off a ship that was in a storm. And any of you who've been on boats know you can get seasick. And some of us get seasick on a boat that's barely moving, let alone really moving. Now consider being inside of a fish that's swimming for three days, right? The continual motion of that. And... I think there was probably some seasickness involved in that because you can only be in constant motion for so long before it gets to you. And then I think we, if you, for some reason I picture like the story of Pinocchio where Geppetto is inside a whale. He's like on this raft in this whale and he's got a fire and it's lit and, you know, it's not that bad. Well, that's not the picture of Jonah at all. He is inside of a fish's belly in the sea, it's totally dark. Can't see anything. And he's in its stomach. Stomachs generally expand and contract to accommodate whatever is in them. So his ability to move about is very limited. He's very constrained. And what's he in inside this fish's stomach, right? That's the next thing I'm thinking is, okay, so 
whatever else this fish has eaten is in there with him. And it's not like he's in a seafood buffet. He's in a seafood buffet that was, should have been in the dumpster out back a week ago. Because all these fish, whatever this fish is eating, is decomposing and being digested. And Jonah's in there with it. And he's getting worked on as well. He's going to be getting digested. The stomach acid just doesn't disappear. So the irritation on his skin of that stomach acid working on him. Chances are he can't even open his eyes because it burns so much. Um, hard to breathe. God had to have intervened in order to provide air for Jonah to survive within this fish. And I think as, you, as I was studying this, I find there are some sources who say, well, Jonah must have died and the Lord resurrected him again because he could not have survived in the fish, right? It's just impossible. Well, that's, you have a point there. There's also the possibility that this whole event has been miraculous. Would it be that much more of a stretch for the Lord to sustain his life in that fish by some means? I don't think it's uncalled for. So his ability to breathe. And as we go through chapter 2, you'll see at one point it talks about the sea weeds are wrapped up around my head, right? So now in the fish, there's some seaweed in there. He's wrapped up. He's It's just trying to paint this picture of this not being an enjoyable experience. This is hard. This is very hard. <clears throat> and then at the same time, as you go through chapter 2, you see this fish that ate Jonah saved his life. So the fish that normally would be a death sentence to be eaten by a fish is not something you walk away from, right? But this is how God chooses to preserve Jonah's life and to transport him back to dry land. So the fish that would be a death sentence has become his, his savior, not in the sense of a savior of his soul, but of his life. So God used would normally be a death sentence to preserve his life. And God is glorified in the preserving of Jonah's life. And he does it in such a unique manner, there's no doubt that he is responsible for this. Right? This is not something we, oh yeah, a guy came up on shore the other week, he got swallowed by a fish again. You know, It happens every couple weeks or something. It doesn't happen. We don't hear about it. This is a unique experience. This is, God is glorified in this. This is a miraculous event. <clears throat> so into chapter 2, we see, so just following the flow here, starting at 17, I guess, before I get into chapter 2, just to sort of set the sequence, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The next verse says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Reading that, I, I gather this prayer is coming at the end of the three days and three nights. It says that that very first verse says, then Jonah prayed, right? And then at the conclusion of it, verse 10, it says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, further emphasizing that this is at the end of his three days, three nights. And there were a few other things I saw just looking through this. Notice the length of Jonah's prayer, right? He's in there three days, three nights. 
if you look through this and look at, well, where do all the sentences end and the next one begin? There's, there's nine sentences here for this prayer. It is not lengthy. Um, I read through it and timed myself. It takes you just about a minute to read it if you're, not, if you're reading at a comfortable pace, right? Um, it is not long-winded. Which um, the thing I would get at is, so if you are worried that your prayers are not extravagant enough, that they're not long enough, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of a fish for one minute. Your prayers don't need to be super long. They don't need to be extravagant. Christ pointed out how the Pharisees prayed for long amounts of time so that people could see them and respect them. And he said, don't be like that. Right? Your prayers should be short. They should be to the point. They need to glorify God, right? So don't be concerned if your prayers are not super long. That is not an example from Scripture, length of prayers. And the other thing you see in here, there's not really any requests from Jonah, right? We're so used to when we pray, like, I'm going to, God, I need this, I need this, I need this. And you don't see that here so much. Um, The closest thing I see to a request from him is in that first Verse where he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, right? This, he is calling out in his distress. That's like the closest thing I could get to a request from Jonah. But you see it as a psalm of thanksgiving and celebration of the Lord's mercy. That's how it ends, is he, the very last phrase of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? He comes to this conclusion of how great God's mercy is. And the thing that I noticed as I went through this, I love looking at the little, I have the ESV and it has all those little references in the center margins that you can barely read without a magnifying glass. And there's just Psalms throughout here. You see, like every single verse, I'm going to hit on it. Every single verse, there's a Psalm tied to it. And so Jonah is praying through the Psalms in this manner as he's in the fish. And which brought to mind Psalm 119, verse 50, which says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. So in the midst of Jonah's affliction, he reflects on the Lord's promises. That is life-giving. And you'll notice in that first phrase of verse 2, before it even gets to the prayer, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, right? We had seen in chapter 1, Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But when they ask him, well, who is your Lord? And he said, well, here is my God, right? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. But then it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. There seems to be a change here in Jonah's attitude. He is, the Lord is his God here. Despite having fled from the presence of the Lord, Jonah still acknowledges his God, and it's been made clear to him who's in charge. Right? He's seen this storm being controlled by God. Now he's been swallowed by a fish. Right? He's, he's, it has been made clear to him. It has been made known. God is in charge. So in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. I think when Tom read it, it said out of the grave, maybe, in your translation. But we see in the different Psalms here, we have Psalm 120, verse 1 says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. It sounds an awful lot like that first verse, that first half of that verse. Psalm 22, verse 24 says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from me, but has heard when I, when I cried to him. Talking about, and you heard my voice, right? So he's reflect, these verses are a reflection of the Psalms. And for Jonah, it takes almost dying, being swallowed by a fish, in order for him to humble himself here, right? In order for him to call out to the Lord. But when he does, God hears him. And we have this, the belly of Sheol. In this case, we have certain death. If you look throughout the Old Testament, Sheol is often referred to as death, um, referred to as the pit, which we will see in verse 6 here. Um, As Tom's translation read, it was grave, right? The depths. So it's this, Sheol is often, it was this idea of death. Psalm 30, verse 3 says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who who go down to the pit. He's reflecting that he is, our phrase would be, he is on death's doorstep when the Lord comes and sends this fish and saves him. He is in the belly of Sheol. He is, he is as close to death as he can be for all circumstances. Verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Seems like an accurate description of the storm they were in, right? You cast me into the deep. He's thrown overboard. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You hear sometimes about men who fall overboard off of naval ships, and they often don't find them. You ever watch these shows like Deadliest Catch? Someone goes overboard there. Those guys are in some rough seas, and it's, it's next to impossible to find somebody. Because all your waves and your billows passed over me, right? You are, you are, you want to feel helpless? Go be in some water that is a torrent, right? You, you have no power there. And this is that acknowledgement from Jonah that God is control of the situation and of creation. And that it says, you cast me into the deep, right? This is a a judgment on Jonah for his fleeing from the presence of the Lord, for disobeying what the Lord told him. And he is acknowledging that. You cast me into the deep. This is what I deserved based on where I was at. And then some more of the Psalms that we see reflected here. Psalm 88, verses 6 and 7, say, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. And Psalm 42, verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You have the psalmist reflecting upon just the overwhelming power of water, right? And you see Jonah's reflecting upon that here. He has experienced it. 
and he knows who has done it to him. Verse 4 says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. It's interesting thinking through this. It says, I am driven away from your sight. But then, what was Jonah doing going to Tarshish again? He was freeing, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, right? His goal was to escape from the Lord's sight. And here he's reflecting, he's saying, I am driven away from your sight, right? Now, the very thing I was trying to accomplish me, I've been trying to accomplish, has become my punishment, right? And we, we know that the Lord is everywhere and that he, he sees all things. So we know that the Lord is actually present with him in the belly of this fish. But this is a reflection on, this feels like the Lord's presence has been removed from me, right? This was, I am close to death. But his, his desire to flee from the presence of the Lord has now become his punishment. He has gotten what he wanted, and it is not, not a good thing. Psalm 31, verse 22, in relation to this verse, says, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you from help. All right, so the psalmist is feeling, I'm cut off from you, Lord. I do not feel that you are, your presence is with me. But you hear the, the voice of my pleas for mercy, right? So even though Jonah feels that he is driven away from the sight of the Lord, he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So I don't know at this point what Jonah's thinking. If he's thinking, well, this is it. I'm going to die, and I will, I will be with the presence of the Lord in his holy temple. Or if he can feel this fish ascending from the deep, and he's thinking, well, maybe I'm going to be spit out, and my life will be preserved after all. And I will go to the temple and I will worship the Lord. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what his thoughts are. It's not explained in enough detail to give us that picture. But he still has his hope in the Lord in the midst of this experience of essentially being dead. And you remember, Jonah's an Israelite. And so for the Israelites, the temple was the earthly location of God's presence. This is, once again, we know God is everywhere, but for them, the temple is where you went if you wanted to be in God's presence. And Jonah is desiring to be with the Lord. He wants to, it seems that he wants to have that relationship restored, right? He wants to, again, look upon your holy temple. He is feeling that separation that, that he has, and he wants that to, to end. Into verse 5, we have the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. So now we have a description of what has happened to Jonah after he's been tossed into the sea. Right? He's, they've, he's gone under. The waters have closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. He's gone down far enough where it says weeds were wrapped about my head, right? So not only is he in the water, seemingly drowning, but now he's tangled in seaweed. 
And it says he's at the roots of the mountains, right? So the roots, like, so on a tree, the roots are at the base. They're underground. So he, he feels he is at the roots of the mountains. He is at the bottom of the sea, right? And the interesting, the interesting thing about being underwater is, like, whether you're in at the bottom of 1,000 feet of water or if you're at the bottom of six inches of water, <laughs> if you can't get out, you are the same level of helpless. The water has that power over you, but he is at the roots of the mountains. He has sunk to the bottom of the deep. This, this brush with death that, that he has, the complete helplessness that he experiences. Um, there were some commentators talking, you know, the literal translation would not just be life, but it would be the soul, the physical, the spiritual death this utter destruction that he feels is is happening. And we have here Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. This being overpowered by water, the helplessness. Verse 6, I had already read about the seaweed being wrapped about his head at the roots of the mountain, but it says from there, it says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Psalm 18.5 says, The cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. You have, he talks... I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Uh, the, the bottom of the ocean becomes Jonah's eternal prison. The bars are closing in on him. And yet, God delivered him. Jonah was powerless to save himself at this point. There's nothing in Jonah that can say later on, like, yeah, I got thrown into the sea, and I managed to get out of there. Like, I, I'm so strong, I escaped, Right? No, this is purely God's mercy being shown to Jonah. He's without power here. And he acknowledges that where he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Psalm 30 verse 3 says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. So pointing to the mercy of the Lord being exercised when at the brink. verse 7 says when my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple so Jonah's on the brink of death right his my life was fainting away and it says Jonah prays and God answered says I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So how gracious, how merciful is God in this, right? We talked some last week. Jonah has put himself in such a position. He is worthy of death, right? He has earned that as his payment for what he has done. He had, God has given him a specific command. He has chosen to flee. And he, 
and not just flee, but to flee from the Lord's presence was his goal. He has put himself in a position where death would be expected, right? That would be the just punishment for what he has done. And yet we see God preserves him. God is gracious to Jonah. He shows him great mercy. Psalm 18, verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. That sounds an awful lot like Jonah's prayer in verse 7. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Pointing again to this picture of the Lord being on his throne. He is in heaven. And even in this act of saving Jonah with this great fish, the Lord remains stationed in heaven, right? He doesn't have to leave his throne and come down and intervene with Jonah personally, right? He has such authority over creation, he can do it from there. And all at the same time, we also know that God is everywhere, right? He, he exercises his power. So you have this picture of God on his throne in heaven, and yet God everywhere at the same time. But we, hear, we see where he... He hears Jonah's prayer, right? Even in the midst of his life fainting away, his prayer came to God, right? It is heard. In the verse 8, we have those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So if you remember in Jonah 1, verse 5, It says, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, right? They prayed to vain idols. They paid their regard to their vain idols, right? So what does the word vain mean? It means pointless. It is to no avail. It is, it is worthless. Um, and I think Jonah's pointing towards these sailors, like, in, in their prayers, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So if you want to trade the God of heaven for a God of your own making, just know that you forsake the hope of steadfast love, right? What, what is with the, the hope, this, this joy that we have, this things that we can look forward to of the steadfast love of the Lord? It is steadfast always there. It is consistent. It is never changing. You forsake that. If you want to turn from the, from the Lord, here's what you are exchanging that for. You're exchanging it for nothing. You pray to vain idols, and in return, you get nothing. You forsake the goodness that the Lord has for you. <clears throat> Psalm 31 verse 6 says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And I, why would you exchange the better thing for the worst thing, right? Why would you give up the steadfast love of the Lord in exchange for praying to vain idols? Why would you do that, right? And it, there were, I had some notes that talked about, so steadfast love, in the case of the Israelites, they had this Hebrew word hesed, 
which goes even beyond what we might think of as steadfast love, but you have God's covenant faithfulness to his people, which you see exercised throughout the Old Testament with the Israelites. So even in the midst of all their rebellion, right, when the times when they, they pray to vain idols, right, God has a covenant with them that he keeps. He has made a covenant to be faithful to his people. And it doesn't mean he doesn't punish them or discipline them, but he is continually bringing them back, right? And we see this with Babylon, that as Jonah is going to minister to them, eventually the Israelites end up being taken captive, though the northern, northern kingdom is taken captive by Babylon. And yet, God brings them back. He redeems them. This covenant faithfulness, this steadfast love. And there is hope to be found in the love of the Lord. And thinking about this captivity of the Babylonians, uh, 2 Kings 17, 15 says, and this is talking about the Israelites and the way they interacted. It says, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and, and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. I like how that says they went after false idols and they became false. You become like what you worship. If you chase false idols, you yourself will become false, right? You pay regard to vain idols, you in turn will become vain. You follow the steadfast love of the Lord, that will be reflected in you. You'll become more and more like him. Verse 9 says, but, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we, we go through this prayer of Jonah, and you come to this conclusion. Jonah knows who he owes his life to, right? With a voice of thanksgiving. Right? What situation is Jonah in? What was I describing? What is this like? It's terrible. This has got to be excruciating. And yet he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. So in the midst of this torment inside this fish, he has thanksgiving to the Lord, right? He, his life has been preserved. He has not received the due penalty for his sins against God. He is thankful for that. And he desires to honor the one who has saved him by offering sacrifices and a vow. So sacrifices were part of the, the system that Israel was under at that time. That, that's pretty normal. And you'd have your sacrifices that you are commanded to, to do, and then you have your sacrifices that you do, your free will offerings, right? You have, the Lord has been so good to you, you feel compelled. I want to give beyond. And I think that would be a sacrifice that would be worthy of here. Um, and he talks about, it's a vow that I will pay. So vows could be monetary, or like I said earlier, they could be, if you do this, Lord, I will do this thing. I will follow through on this. And it doesn't say what his vow is. 
but I have to wonder if his vow was, Lord, if you get me out of here, if you get me out of this fish, you preserve my life, I will go to Nineveh. I will preach to them as you asked me to. Right? The very thing that Jonah did not want to do, that he was fleeing from doing, he's like, I will do it. Right? He has come to that point. And his gratefulness is such that he is there. That This voice of thanksgiving. Um, that is my own thought. So don't take it as gospel truth. But that's what I have, a thought I have in mind. Um, and so he's grateful for his salvation, right? It says salvation belongs to the Lord. His life has been preserved. Um, and we know... With Christ, right? Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now that Christ has come, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You have, pointing to the Psalms that he is, that I think he is drawing from, you have Psalm 50 verse 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 50 verse 23 says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. That one hits on the sacrifices and salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than, than that you should vow and not pay. So the seriousness associated with making a vow, right? God does not take pleasure in your promises that you don't follow through in. He says he has no pleasure in fools. And so then the passage concludes in verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So the fish, under the command of God, it says the Lord spoke to the fish. Under God's command, it spits Jonah out. Vomits Jonah out. That's, I think spit is something that um, I'm used to hearing that in regard to this, but when it says vomited, like this is a, this is a violent act, most likely. Like, just imagine Jonah. He's in this fish for three days. He's probably in pretty poor condition, and he gets thrown up by a fish. But God is gracious, and he does it on dry land for Jonah. <laughs> he doesn't vomit him out into the water. Like, okay, well... Swim it from here. Probably Jonah wasn't in any condition to be swimming at that point. He probably needed to come out on dry land. But you see the deliverance of God, of of Jonah by God from what was potentially his grave, right? He he could have been digested by this fish, and that was the end of Jonah. You wouldn't have heard any of this. We wouldn't have this this account. So he is delivered from the grave. Again, pointing us to God's control over his creation, his sovereignty in creation. And again, just thinking like, Jonah must have been 
a sight to behold, right? He probably can't hardly walk if he can walk at all. He's been cramped up in this fish for three days. He's been getting digested for three days. He's been in the dark. He's, he's probably cold or else he's exceedingly hot, depending on what kind of fish he's in. But he's in, he's in remarkable condition and not in a good way, is what I would say. Um, he's a, he is, he's much worse for the wear. And then you get into the next section. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Right? So shortly after, it doesn't give us a timetable, but it says, Then the word of the Lord. Right? So Jonah doesn't necessarily get a break, other than Jonah's not, Nineveh's not close by, so he has a trip he can recuperate on. So reflecting on this second chapter of Jonah, you know, you have the Lord takes Jonah to the brink of death, right? You see that reflected in, in, this, in his prayer. But then he preserves his life in a miraculous way. And in the midst of this, it, for Jonah, it took this near-death experience for Jonah to turn from his sin. And as we go deeper into the book of Jonah, as we get to chapter 4, we see Jonah's foolishness is not completely driven out of him, right? After he preaches to the Ninevites and they repent, he sits and pouts, right? He says, oh, I was afraid you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to do this, right? He, he forgets about the mercies of the Lord that's just been shown to him. And so with that in mind, it's like, so are, we, are you waiting for some near-death experience for you to become, make it right with the Lord? I hope not, right? That is, that is not the way you want to do this. Because sometimes when you share the gospel with people, that's what you'll hear from them is, I'll do that like on my deathbed. I'll take care of that just before I die, right? Like, well, you may not have an opportunity and... What kind of attitude does that reflect of your attitude of God, right? If you say, I, I, he's not important enough for me to do it until the last moment, right? Um, and so what things did Jonah do right and what things did Jonah do wrong here, right? We saw in chapter 1, Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You know, obviously not a good idea. He... Eventually, you see in verse 9 there where he, he has this, he will sacrifice to the Lord. He has a vow that he will pay. He reflects that salvation belongs to the Lord, right? So he, in the end, seems to be submitting himself to the will of God, right? The, the, the proper choice. If he would have done that when God first came to him and gave him this clear revelation of what to do, things would have went much better for him, right? He could have avoided a lot of difficulty if he would have just obeyed the Lord from the very beginning. And so then I think about ourselves. I'm like, how much harm do we cause to ourselves by the sins we decide to do in our lives, right? The Lord had, we, when I was preaching through some of the other Psalms, you had this idea that Scripture has rules for life. If you follow these rules, there are just blessings built in. God has made life that way. That is how it works. And yet when you 
choose not to follow God's ways, you will reap the consequences of that. He, there are built-in consequences in life for not obeying God's rules. So how much harm do we bring upon ourselves by not following God's clear instructions? And in the midst of that, if you are a believer, Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if you are a believer and you have sins that you are struggling with, don't be surprised when there is discipline that comes upon you. Chances are you're not going to be swallowed by a great fish, but you will experience hardship as a result of your sin, and part of that is God correcting you. And so don't be like Jonah, right? Don't wait for the sin to become so great that God's punishment is so great that you're on the brink of death, right, to, to make that right. And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, that is not a good place to be. There is punishment that awaits. And even Jonah was punished, and he knew the Lord. And there is blessing that comes with being in a right relationship with the Lord from turning from sin, placing faith in Christ. And then the, the third and last thing I wanted to, to hit on here was Jonah's reference to the Psalms throughout his prayer is just, it's so encouraging. And at the same time, I ask myself, do I know the scriptures well enough that if I am in a hardship, in a place where the scriptures are not available to me, could I pray a prayer, anything like Jonah's? Do I know the scriptures well enough? Are they hidden in my heart well enough that they would come out in the midst of that difficulty? Could you pray like Jonah if you are without your Bible in a difficult circumstance, right? Are you storing up the word of God in your heart? And that's one of the great things that I saw in here. So I kept referencing all the Psalms throughout here was you just see it reflected so much in Jonah's prayer. Him, the Psalms just come out of him as he's in his desperation. So I encourage you to memorize your scriptures and get in the Psalms as well. There's so much richness in there as well. So... Close us with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for this account we have of Jonah, of we see how you, you worked in his life, you worked in creation to bring things to fruition there. We thank you that we can say salvation belongs to the Lord and that we can call out to you in our trials and difficulties, Lord. Help us to love your word. Help us to, to learn it to memorize it. Help our prayers to reflect your word, Lord. Um, help us to turn to you in, in times of difficulty and to, to obey you before we ever get to times of difficulty. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your hymn books to 305. We're going to sing the first, second, and fourth verse. We can all stand together. You know, oftentimes the Lord does take us in ways that we don't expect.
to move us to his word and into a deeper relationship with him. Sometimes that takes discipline. And uh, this song kind of goes with that too, as we want to get deeper and deeper with Jesus. Let's sing the first, second, and fourth verse. Into the heart of Jesus, deeper and deeper I go, seeking to know the reason why he should love me so, why he should stoop to lift me up from the miry clay. Saving my soul, making me whole, though I had wandered away. Into the will of Jesus, deeper and deeper I go. Praying for grace to follow, seeking his way to know. Bowing in full surrender, low at his blessed feet, bidding him take, break me and make, till I am molded and meet. Into the joy of Jesus, deeper and deeper I go. Rising with soul enraptured, far from the world below. Joy in the place of sorrow, peace in the midst of pain. Jesus will give, Jesus will give, he will uphold and sustain. Lord, today as we leave, help us to... Be reminded that your greatest joy is to draw you close to us, that you love us to love you, you love us to serve you, you want us to know your word. Teach us, teach us to draw close, teach us to desire that relationship that gives us peace and joy even in hard times. Thank you, Father, for this message. Move it to our hearts, help us to grow, help us to be even more softened to what you desire from us, and we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.